Hi, this is Randy Backer from the Guess Who and BTO, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcast presents Real Rock with Andy King, part of the Pantheon Network of Podcasts. Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Real Rock. I'm the rock and roll reverend Andy King, and today we will be talking about the Motley Crue biopic The Dirt, available now on Netflix. I will be exploring various aspects of the film, so consider this your spoiler warning. View the film, get a shot of penicillin, and then come back for our discussion. A lot like Tommy Lee unzipping his pants, we have a lot to unpack here, and some of the questions we will be answering are, why are we talking about Pat Boone? Is this film just a two-hour sitcom trope? Is it really the dirt? Special note, while I was doing research for this show, I stumbled on some things that really killed any care I would have for the crew. I'm going to do this review in the show proper, and then add a little rant at the end. Trigger warnings will be issued before I start said rant. But for now, let's grab the Aquanet and put on some lingerie so we can mimic our heroes in toxic masculinity. This is Real Rock The Dirt. We got the runaway. A kid drummer. An old man. Let's just play it. A cover band singer. They say you're going to be a rock star. What do you think? Holy shit. If we want to knock people on their asses, then we've got to give them a show. I'm talking like a stadium show in the clubs. The fans, they're dying for some anarchy. So let's give it to them. Sit up, kids, because you're about to hear a tale of porno, bad financial choices, and Pat Boone. This is my personal, lifelong dive into the myth of Motley Crue. And it all starts at the 1997 American Music Awards. I was fairly new to rock and roll, and I was still a few months away from discovering punk, but I had gravitated to bands like Kiss, Marilyn Manson, and Alice Cooper, you know, shock rockers. I had heard that Alice Cooper would be appearing at the AMAs, so I set up a VCR to tape it. That's when I was introduced to someone I was sure was a badass legend that I had not heard of yet. There, beside Alice Cooper, stood a leather-clad giant, giving an award to Metallica. It was Pat Boone. And he must have been so cool, because Lars Ulrich said he might be Metallica's new lead singer. <laughs> we have an announcement to make. Actually, what, all the stuff they were just saying is all just lies. Pat's our new lead singer. <laughs> it's all up from here on out. <laughs> I made a note right then and there to check out more of this Pat Boone fella. But Pat wasn't the only rock and roll revelation I had that night. I also made a note to check out the badasses that were singing about shouting at the devil. I made a note to check out Motley Crue. 
signed up for one of those buy 12 CD for a penny gimmicks. And I'm not lying or exaggerating. The first two CDs I picked up were Pat Boone's No More Mr. Nice Guy and Motley Crue's Generation Swine. For some reason, I was expecting some proto-shock rock from Boone, but I got this. Panama. Panama. I was expecting hard rock badassery from crew, but I got this. I was expecting 12 CDs for a penny, but they kept coming and I got this. You're grounded. The point of all of this is to tell you that my history with crew started with disappointment. After listening to Generation Swine in its entirety the first time, the only time, I didn't go back to the crew for four years. When they released the book The Dirt, co-written with Neil Strauss. I knew of Strauss from his work on the Marilyn Manson autobiography, The Long Hard Road Out of Hell, which I really enjoyed. So I picked up a copy of The Dirt and I read through it. If you haven't read the book, it's basically an oral history of the band with an emphasis on their debauchery. The legend of their antics eclipsed all other rock star shenanigans I had read up until that point. I read the Zeppelin book, Hammer of the Gods, in 8th grade. This was Hammer of the Gods with a shot of heroin and genital warts. Needless to say, I was intrigued again with Motley Crue. I decided to give them a fair shake this time, so I went and I picked up a few albums, and I was disappointed again. Each album I listened to would have one, maybe two good songs, and the rest would be utter crap. This led me to two realizations about Motley Crue. Realization 1. The stories of their antics were infinitely more interesting than their music to me. And number 2. Every compliment I could give them was not really a compliment at all. I could say Home Sweet Home is arguably the best of the 80s power ballads, but that's like being Courtney Love's cleanest pair of panties. It sounds like a compliment, but uh, is it really? Of course, anyone I ever talked to about Crew never wanted to talk about them as performers or musicians. People only wanted to talk about their antics, and that makes sense because we love bad people. Whether it's Tony Soprano, Jax Teller, or Walter White, we love to live vicariously through characters that live out decadence and indulge in their own carnal desires. The flip side of that coin is that as much as we love to watch and wish it was us, we also love to watch them fall. We love schadenfreude in our media, and Motley Crue offers us that in spades. Details of their antics become tabloid fodder with stories of drug overdoses and famous marriages and even a death and resurrection story. Plans for a movie based on the antics of Crew was put in motion almost immediately. The paragons of artistic virtue at MTV were the first to option the picture. But that deal fell through really quickly, as you'll hear Nikki Six explain in an interview with Rolling Stone. We had a deal with MTV um, Films, 
and I had also done a book through uh, MTV with Pocketbooks and had a really bad experience. Not really artist friendly, not really fan friendly, and not really creative friendly. And those are all things that are like the core of what we're about as a band and what the core of, of what I'm about. So we eventually struggled with it with each other and we had to fight a bit, but we now have the film back. The script has gone through a few changes, um, so now we can sort of organize it and get it to where we want it. I've always believed that it's a cross between Goodfellas and maybe Boogie Nights. Goodfellas meets Boogie Nights. Are we sure Nikki's still sober? Also, that clip is from 2011, which really puts into insight how long this film has suffered in development purgatory. It wasn't until March of 2017 when Netflix picked up the rights to the film. Dozens of diehard crew fans rejoiced because now they were going to be on Netflix where everything goes. To add to the hypothetical celluloid debauchery, Jeff Tremaine was even kept as the director. Tremaine is best known for his work of the jackass shows and movies, and his style and gag reflex seemed to fit the band perfectly. So how did they do? On the other side of this break, we'll find out. Let's get back to it. The film opens on a party at the crew house and focuses on a groupie ejaculating. It's as if Motley Crue are staring you in the face asking, Do we have your attention? Can we have your attention? Please? That is a recurring theme of this film, and theoretically there's nothing wrong with that, especially considering the subject. All of Motley Crue's actual greatest hits are on display. Gross Out Contest with Ozzy. Check. Trashing Hotel Rooms. Check. Too many groupies to count. Better get that checked. Now this is your first real tour, right? I want you to be careful. Have fun, but no one to say when. Because a life full of booze, drugs, and unprotected sex is only gonna fuck you up, man. I mean, you take it too far, and you'll go fucking mad. Now give me a straw of fancier bum. Of course, none of this is new territory for you real diggers. Most of this is just standard biopic fare. The only hook to this film is that the second act bullshit excess montage is roughly one hour of the one hour and a half runtime. Most of it is played as a comedy, which kind of makes sense considering that the story of Motley Crue is an examination of what happens when you give white trash money. It's basically the Beverly Hillbillies with guitars and drugs. The Beverly Hillbillies. Come and listen to my story about a man named Jed. A poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food. And up to the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil that is black gold Texas tea. Y'all stay retired now, you hear? Visually, this film offers nothing more than the made-for-VH1 biopics of yore. In the big concert scenes, you can't see past the second row, and that's because extras are expensive. The camera work is boring and uninspired, with the only interesting aspect being the Tommy Lee day-in-the-life-of scene, which starts as a cool point-of-view sequence, but quickly forgets that's what they were going for before starting it back up again. You want to know what life on the road's really like? 
for me, every day was something like this. 5 p.m., phone rings, wake up, ah, remember nothing. 7.30 p.m., hang out backstage, drink, come back to life. Hey, Tom. Hey, what up, man? Meet record and radio creeps. Listen to a mask. You remember pissing on that cop car last night? Uh, no. 9.30 p.m. Showtime. Adrenaline kicks in. 10.30. Drum solo in a giant spinning steel cage. Wow! That's rapper Machine Gun Kelly channeling Tommy Lee's inner douche bro. He turns one of the more interesting performances in this film. Comedian Pete Davidson turns in the worst. Pretty much everyone in between falls into the meh category. But you know, I probably would have paid better attention to the actors had their wigs not been so bad that they're distracting. I'm pretty sure the costume designer got these wigs from the same place Nikki Six has been getting his wigs for the last 20 years because they're terrible and we fucking know they're wigs. Despite its flaws, this film is actually rather fun to watch in the same way that Porky's or Bachelor Party is. The drugs and sex are just fun. And that's the nicest thing I'll say about this movie. But I have to admit, given my personal history with Motley Crue and being disappointed, this movie didn't really disappoint me. But like every other compliment, that's not really a compliment. I wasn't expecting much, and the dirt delivered what I was expecting. The main sin that I could accuse this film of is the sanitization of its own story. This movie doesn't exactly give you the dirt as it makes every excuse imaginable for their more problematic behaviors, or at least the problematic behaviors that they are willing to address. You see, in this universe, Vince crashes his car killing Razzle because of a momentary distraction, not because he's crazy loaded going over 30 miles the speed limit. Tommy Lee is not a serial wife beater. He's literally goaded into it, to the point that it's almost accidental when he hits his then-fiancé. You see, in this universe, the crew aren't really that bad. They just like to have a good time, and sometimes bad stuff happens. Remember in Bohemian Rhapsody how none of the members of the band ever did anything wrong and were perfect supportive people? That happens here in the dirt, too. But in both of those instances, the band kept a heavy hand in their film's productions. The inherent problem with this is that Motley Crue should be dangerous and raw and dirty, pun fully intended. When you take something dangerous and raw and dirty and try to sanitize it to make it less threatening, what you end up with is Pat Boone. With all that being said, the final rating for The Dirt is two stars. Now 
that I have fully reviewed the film, I need to vent a little about Motley Crue. Trigger warnings for sexual assault and racism. As I was doing research for this show, I fell down a rabbit hole of crew lore. Of course, there's all the stories from the book, and Nikki Six has honestly never stopped talking to the press about anything, but I found some things that absolutely angered me. First, there's the obvious point that most of the stories of Motley Crue are probably bullshit, or at the very least, overly exaggerated. But really, rock stars and their tall tales are like chocolate and peanut butter, they just go together. What fascinates me is the ability they have to walk back their excess stories when they prove to be unforgivable, especially in our evolving social climates. For instance, there's a scene in the book where Nikki flat out discusses what is absolutely a non-consensual sexual encounter between himself, Tommy Lee, and an unnamed groupie. In an interview with Rolling Stone, who rightfully called him out on this scene, Six backtracked hard, claiming that it was an embellishment from writer Neil Strauss. Says Nikki, quote, I have no clue why that's in there, other than I was out of my head or possibly it was greatly embellished or I made it up. Those words were irresponsible on my part. I am sorry. End quote. Kind of makes you wonder what else is made up. And while I find this particular story revolting, I found another story that's caused me to swell with anger every time I've thought about the crew. In November of 1997, in my adopted city of Greensboro, North Carolina, Nikki Six called a security guard the N-word and instructed the audience to, quote, kick this motherfucker's ass, unquote. Allegedly, the guard was being rough with some crew fans, including female fans, which led to Nikki's outburst. Here's audio from the event. I have bleeped out the racial slurs due to a personal policy I have at Real Rock, but I will provide a link in the show notes to the video that you can watch unedited. Six reached a confidential settlement with the security guard and was convicted of inciting a riot, which was a reduction of his original charge of felony riot with ethnic intimidation. Nikki's public apology came four years later in an online chat with USA Today readers. I think his apology in itself is sickening. Quote, I am the least racist person I know. I could really care less what color, sex, or sexual orientation you are. That incident proved to me what anger can do. That gentleman had spit in my face and was yelling obscenities at me. If he was a woman, I'd have called him a bitch. 
He was black and I called him the worst thing I could. I've apologized to him. It was a wrong thing to do at the heat of the moment. I know a lot of racists and I don't condone it. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done. If I'm hearing the N-word while watching rap on MTV, there's a chance I'll use the word, right? End quote. That was his fucking apology? You're fucking gross, and you should be ashamed of yourself. The problem is, for some reason, Nikki Six gets a relative pass from the outrage culture. Every few years, the media trots out these washed-up posers, and we all get to celebrate how far they've come and how Nikki is totally a righteous dude now. I will admit, his work with spreading help with the opioid epidemic is admirable, but when you call a man the N-word and then try to start some kind of lynch mob, and then blame rap videos, I can't respect anything that you do. I won't even bother trying to break down the story of Tommy Lee's swastika tattoo. I'm just tired of these guys. I'm tired of their story, and in all honesty, they should be canceled. I don't necessarily want them to go away mad. I just want them to go away. Thank you for joining me on this little field trip to the methadone clinic. Make sure you go to PantheonPodcast.com for archives of this show and all of the great shows on our network. Check me out on Facebook and Twitter, at Real Rock Podcast. I want to hear how things affected you, so hit me up at RealRockPodcast at gmail.com. I am the rock and roll reverend, Andy King, and this has been Real Rock, The Dirt. is written by Andy King and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. <laughs>